I'm Tim Burrows. I'm talking today to the two bosses of Paramount in Australia. Jared Villani runs the business side of the operation, and Beverly McGarvey is in charge of content and programming decisions. That includes subscription service Paramount Plus, ad-supported streaming service 10Play, and, of course, Network 10. The conversation comes after Paramount's Upfront's Roadshow for 2024, in which it became clear that the company is moving more swiftly than its competitors away from the days of linear television, when the thing that most mattered was the overnight number on the main channel. Now, some of that is of necessity. Paramount lacks the big sporting rights and deep local news resources that guarantee live audiences. But it's also a question of leaning into the benefits of being part of a global operation. Soon, that will include an advertising tier on Paramount+. Plus. Everything about Paramount is increasingly differentiated from the competition. I began by asking them whether Paramount has made the philosophical leap that its first priority is no longer linear television. I might start and then Jared will certainly have something to say on this, I am sure. But I think what I would say is philosophically, we are in a place that all of our platforms we consider to be equal. They're all equally important. Our audiences choose to consume our content on 10, 10 Play, the multi-channels, Paramount Plus, and on the fast channels. I wouldn't say that linear is not a priority. It is a priority. It's incredibly important. There's still massive reach on linear, um, and there's still massive advertising dollars on linear. However, what I would say is that philosophically, we were in, we are in a place that we consider one paramount, that we make a show like Inspired Unemployed or whatever it is, and we think, um, this is great for our audiences. What is the right scheduling for this? Where should it play? Where can we get the best value from it? Where do audiences want to consume it? And um, how do we build 10 or Paramount Plus or Nickelodeon? How do we do any of those things? So I think we are philosophically in a multi-platform place, but 10 remains critical in that, I would say, Jared. So when we think about our business, Tim, we think about that component, which includes linear as free to view. So when you when you look at when you look at any of our businesses, you see that the vast majority of content that is consumed on free streaming platform like Tenplay comes from linear. So it is first shown on linear currently. So to divorce linear from free IP based viewing on Tenplay is not the way in which we visualise our business. And I think that that's an evolution that the industry um, I think broadly understands. Uh, but it's certainly the way in which we think about our business. It's not it's not decoupled. It's a it's a free to view environment. Does that mean you still open up your emails at about nine o'clock every morning to, to have a look at the overnights? Then absolutely, we do that. That's a lifelong habit that cannot be broken. Eight fifty eight, actually. But I'd like to lose that lifelong habit. But the great thing is, you know, Vos numbers come later. We get um, streaming data later. That's all good news. So you know. You get information all day, and we all love information. Well, Jared, you're just approaching your three-year anniversary um, with 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 uh, with with what was then Network Ten and is now um, Paramount. Now, you you were already 
familiar with the organization having sort of been involved in the um the administration side of things um what what i remember you know there was talk about at the time and i think i was probably one of those people was joint leaderships never last um yet the one between the two of you has done so so i wonder how has the working rhythm between the two of you developed over the last three years I think you've got to be really clear, and this is a day-to-day commitment on what your primary and secondary responsibilities are, because both Bev and I move towards overall overall leadership. Um, that's a natural instinct, I think, for anybody in, in these roles, but we check in with each other on a very consistent basis about what our primary and secondary responsibilities are on a day-to-day basis. There are some core components to that. But there are a lot of things that that sit in the middle, um, and that really does come down to communication. And I think I first described it when uh, when I first talked the, uh, took the role that it's really about understanding the relationship between CEO and chairperson um, from time to time, and the CEO components of our role connect to what our primary responsibilities are, and then like any CEO, you you check in with your with your chair and there are lots of things that I consider day to day and I walk 10 steps and go and have a conversation with Bev about those and vice versa and that relationship um, works very well for, for, for both of us. Um, uh, so I think that's been the key to our to our success um, so far. Well, I think that the critical thing is it's a very busy business. We have lots of different business units. We have lots of new businesses as well as the legacy businesses. And we're adding new activities all the time. You know, recently we've added the fast channels. We've rebranded um, Shake to Nickelodeon. Um, we've talked about, you know, the ad tier, et cetera. So there's always lots of interesting work to keep us busy. And also traditionally, um, although we work closely together now, we have very different skill sets and different backgrounds. And that's useful because it means where one of us might have a strength here, the other one will have a strength over there, which is, you know, we our, our skills don't necessarily overlap terribly, I think. Yeah, I suppose that's the strange thing about television, isn't it? Um, if you think about the sort of CEOs from years gone by, there's that expectation that someone has to be a, an audience natural and also somehow know their way around balance sheets, um, despite the fact that they're two very different skills until they kind of meet at the top. So it, it, it kind of almost seems strange that Australia has had a number of successful solo CEOs over the year when it comes to television, over the years when it comes to television. Yeah, it's a good point. Like these days, a media company is a very complex business. So you do need lots of different skills. I think that's probably a key point there, Tim, which is it's the industry's changed quite materially over the last decade, but certainly over the last three to four years. So the skill sets uh, of executives has had to evolve. Well, let's um, talk about something, um, Bev, you, 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 you just mentioned, which is the advertising tier of Paramount Plus. Now, uh, in the, certainly the Upfront's presentation I saw, which was one of the Sydney ones, um, I think the sort of the, the, the point of the timing was next year without much detail so I'd, I'd love if there's a uh, and I might come to you first on on this one Jared I'd, I'd love if there's any more detail you can you can give on what the likely timing is and I wonder if you can also talk about what behind the scenes what 
technical hurdles you need to kind of overcome in order to um, switch on the advertising tier? In terms of timing, no, we can't be more more specific than 2024 at this stage. Um, as soon as as soon as we have real clarity on that, um, we will we will obviously make that announcement. But we don't think there's any point in um, in giving guidance until we're absolutely certain. And it does connect to the second component part of your question because Paramount Plus is built on a um, global tech stack. Um, the needs of every market are slightly different. Um, you know, Australia, we know, and we spoke about a lot during, a lot during our upfronts in, in Sydney, um, is a very advanced advertising market. And we're very conscious of that. We're very conscious of the need for um, not just um, well-developed data, but um, for that data to be as real-time as possible. So we're working through that, thinking about how we best bring that to the market. Um, and once we have clarity on, on, on that and how that fits into a global roadmap, it's not just about what the Australian business needs, but what are the needs of um, all of our markets and what order that they should, they should um, be developed in. So um, that's what we're working through at the moment with the, with the global business. And you also have, obviously, the arrival of Voz Streaming as a kind of joint industry initiative as well. How does that play into it? The, in, on the technicalities side? Uh, well, from we've also spoken a, a bit and had some questions from the floor about converged trading. Um, again, you need three component parts for converged trading to be a real thing. You need the underlying measurement data and those metrics to be readily available. You need internal um, technology to allow that trading to occur off the back of that data. And then you need an industry that is able to um, speak to that system. Uh, I think that VOZ is a really critical component to the way in which converged trading evolves. And you know, 10Play, um, our expansion to fast channels, linear and indeed streaming, um, all play um, or, or will rely on VOZ moving forward. So when we think about the importance of VOZ to get to that converged trading, which seems to be the desire of the market, and I understand why, um, VOZ is a critical component to the way in which we get there as an industry. And do you think you'll arrive at that point, at the same point the advertising tear is switched on, or are the two things not automatically going to align? Unfortunately, you don't control all of those elements. You know, when I spoke to the three elements, uh, we obviously control the timing of the advertising tier from a Paramount Plus perspective. We, we influence some elements around Voz. Uh, and then, of course, the third component of that, which is when, how do we work with industry to ensure that the other two elements speak to the industry and that, that, that the simplicity of trading that we're trying to create can actually be accessed by them. That's something for which... Um, I think as, a, as, a, as an industry, we need to continue to, to chip away at. Well, um, Bev, something I've, I've, I've noticed this year in upfront season, and it feels that every media company, not just not 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 just TV broadcasters, has an upfront these days, is um, people talk less about the content these days than they have in the past. But it is still a 
for television a key component um so let's let, let's maybe talk about network 10 a bit um and the schedule um and before we look at 2024 let's talk about 2023 um for you what what worked and what didn't It's a good point. I think people are talking less about content. I think we're really trying not to talk less about content. It is the core of what we do, like how we sell it, where we serve it. That's all important. But if the content's not great, it doesn't matter what screen it's on or how you're serving the ads. If people aren't watching it, they're not watching it. So in terms of this year, like it has been, um, you know, quite a challenging year. We have had some fantastic content that's worked really well. Our big shows have really held up. We're very happy with the move of I'm a Celebrity into Easter. Survivor holds up well. Survivor actually was up this year. Um, you know, it was actually up in audience terms, not just share, in real terms. Um, the comedies, we've had a fantastic year with our comedies. They do great business for us, both on Overnights and on BVOD. Um, MasterChef, so this is, um, have have you been paying attention and the cheap seats in particular? You haven't been paying attention, the cheap seats. I would say Gogglebox, we added Taskmaster into the mix. And as you would know, it always takes more than one season to get comedies to work. We're very happy with the start of Taskmaster. We've actually filmed season two and we've commissioned season three because you've got like, you've got to be committed to the long term so people get familiar. And Taskmaster is a juggernaut in every country that it's ever launched in. Um, well, I guess one of the things is, I don't, and I presume you're having these conversations with, already with advertisers, it it certainly struck me, you know, household sample of one, that it's a very family friendly format as well when it comes to audience. Absolutely it is. It's very family friendly. And in fact, in the UK, they've just announced they're doing Taskmaster Junior with teenagers which is interesting because of the tasks, like kids are really into it. So and not that we'll go there right now, but it's somewhere to go down the line. But it does prove your point that it's a very family friendly format, um, which is great. And comedians really enjoy it. It's such a great show to cast because comedians will, they love to take part. We've got a great lineup for the next couple of seasons. I presume that now there's one on, in the bag as well. There's a lot more interest from comedians as well now that they understand it. Yeah, absolutely. But to be honest, because it was so massive in the UK, people were really keen to do even season one and because of the two toms and i feel like tom gleason was born to be the taskmaster it just feels like a really good fit um so the, so the comedy's done well for us this year also our subgenre of dogs has done incredibly well dogs behaving badly dog house and i also think that's a tonal thing those things are connected comedy is you know it's fun it's easy dogs are warm and it like it's a family-friendly show and it's also a bit escapist even though it's observational documentary and I think as we move into next year we will certainly lean more heavily into that given the environment that the world finds itself in um I think honestly if we were disappointed with anything this year both personally and professionally it's traders um I think you know the industry people tend to love that show um it's an interesting clever show there's a lot of talking in it um if you switch it on halfway through you have to kind of catch up fast. It's not a show that you can go, oh, look at Survivor. They're doing a challenge. The red team won. Now the red team are going to, you know, they're not going to tribal. It's a bit more complicated than that. So I think that was probably the biggest disappointment for us for the year. I think the team did a great job. They produced a great show. And what I would say is this, sometimes just because it doesn't work, we've had two seasons of it now. We, we have no plans to put it on the schedule next year, but I would never say never. We will let it sit in our multi-channels. We will play it on template. It will sit on Paramount Plus. And sometimes, and it has happened before, 
um, you sometimes see a swell of interest because of a particular moment in time or audiences find it for a particular reason um, or they embrace all the UK seasons on, you know, the fast channels or something. So that was probably the thing that we were um, saddest about this year. If you have a really rubbish show and it doesn't work, you kind of go, okay, we deserve that. But we really, we all really like traders and it just didn't work. So that was a disappointment, honestly. Yeah, and I... I wonder. Hey, I I I really like the format, and I I wonder. Do you think? And, and this is just one of those quirks of timings. Do you think if the first season had gone to air after the UK version had broken, about which there was so much buzz, do you think that could have changed things? Yeah, there was buzz, but there was buzz with people like you and me. Do you know? Does the you know the regular audience member feel the buzz as much as we do we love the buzz it's a super buzzy show it's really buzzy at the markets and everything so maybe that's why i would never say never i think it might be one of those ones that may be a slow burn um and you know what we you take your risk hunted did well we've got a great twist for hunted next year oh just just before we talk about hunted yeah my la- last question on traitors um and this is when I, <laughs> I don't think you can answer this question in a loyal way but i'm going to ask it anyway Roger Corsa, if you had to change something, personally, it felt like, hey, he might be a great actor, but he just wasn't right for that role, in my view. It is so interesting you say that. The feedback we get in Roger is incredible, that he's so playful with it, and he's got such a twinkle in his eye. Like, I obviously love Roger in it. Like, I take your point, but we... You're probably the first person that has ever suggested that Roger wasn't fabulous. Sometimes we get... We love Roger, but I don't get the show. Like we rarely get that we don't love Roger. Um, so, but you know what? We put things into research, um, and we get feedback. We actually did put season one into research, and the audience did like Roger. Um, I think what they felt about season one is that it was a little dark because you know people are running around with capes in the middle of the night talking about assassinating people. So, um, in you know, it's obviously very theatrical, but that was the feedback we got, that they liked him, they liked the playfulness. Um, the UK host is great as well. Um, so, but obviously I'm very loyal. I think Roger's fabulous. <laughs> um, and, and you were saying other, other, other shows that you were thinking about from 2023? Yeah, so um, Hunted had a really solid season. It was a much... Hunted had much tougher competition this year because last year Hunted, I think, surprised people um, and it came out of the block super hard. And this year, everybody programmed against us, of course, because that's, you know, that's how it works. Um, so it had a slightly tougher um, environment, but it still did well, held up really well, does really well on, well on BVOD. The interesting thing is about certain shows like Hunted, like Race, you've got to come out of the gates hard. So we have a super sticky opening for Hunted next year to get people into the beginning. And once you're in at the beginning, you really want to see who gets to the, you know, the um, point at the end. So we've got a couple of a couple of big things on our big brands next year. Like Race, I think, really benefited from celebrities. There's so many moving parts in Race. And to get to episode one and go, oh, look, it's Grant Denyer. Um, you know, he fainted. And there's Darren McMullen. And there's the lovely... Emma Watkins like it just it's easier to connect and have your favorites and care about them um in a mass of people in a mass of different countries you know well speaking of Grand Denny this is probably a good moment to talk about 2024 a uh, deal or no deal 
Yes. So you will recall that we have had um, great success with game shows at six o'clock in the past, largely because there is a certain element of the audience that are looking for an alternative to news. Honestly, the audience who are looking for an alternative to news at six o'clock are generally slightly broader and slightly older than potentially our average entertainment audience. Um, what Deal or Deal does, we believe, with Grant in it is it bridges that gap. It allows us to target those slightly older news audiences, but also there's something in it for family audiences. Who doesn't want to win a suitcase full of money, especially today? So um, that's why we're going there. And again, you know, we talked about many different um, hosts, but Grant he owns that slot. He did such a great job in it. He's perfect talking to people and engaging with people. So we think he's a great choice for it. Um, so that'll launch in the first quarter next year. And also while we're talking game shows, and this is more prime time, if I understand rightly, um, uh, Graham Norton's version of Wheel of Fortune, that, uh, that'll be in the after 7pm slot? Yeah, it will be. It's, it's actually a very short run. They're big... Um, big eventized um, primetime versions of the show. So Graham is hosting a short run for us, um, which is a great get. Our audience really like Graham. He's a really good host. And it's hard, you know, to get him to commit to doing an Australian series. We're actually shooting it off the back of a UK series with Australian contestants and Australian audiences, which is great. And it's a good way to get, um, you know, to do things a bit differently. Yes, I've seen it promoted heavily on the Aussies in London Facebook page to get audience and contestants in. And there are plenty, so that's good. <laughs> um, and is, is it with a view if it works to commissioning a longer series, if you can make that work with Graham Norton? Uh, with Graham, honestly, it'll only ever be a short run. Graham's got, Graham's got his, he writes books, he writes all sorts of things. He's got his um, talk show. He's very committed. So honestly, it's never. he's not going to make 300 episodes a year. It'll be like you know, 6, 10, 12. And with, while well, we're talking about um, commissions for 10, or, um, so for the, the, the free-to-air side of things, what else um, do you see as the highlights for 2024? Well, we're excited about Gladiators. Um, and we've talked about it a bit, um, you know, across the, the upfronts. But the reason we commissioned Gladiators is we were looking for a big event series for January that felt like something the whole family could watch. And if you think about what we've had success in January with over the last number of years, it has been I'm a Celebrity and The Big Bash, big family entertainment um, with sort of an adventurous feel. Gladiators um, is fantastic. You can get behind your favourite one. It appeals to kids. They're great athletes and the contenders are incredible. They're all, you know, super fit F45ers and really competitive. Um, so, and it is something that kids can watch. And also it's a short, sharp stunt. And in that period, I think people just want to come in and watch something short and snappy. And we have had really good success there because you know what you're up against. We're going to be up against the tennis and we're going to be up against the cricket. It's an entertainment alternative. And it's not like we're going to move the dates or anybody's going to shift anything. The tennis isn't going to move. The cricket isn't going to move. It is what it is. So we just want to give audiences who don't want to watch those things or who maybe want to watch a bit of that something different. So that's so, so I'm excited about that. And that's interesting because I think that's the second time I've heard you use the, the phrase alternative. You were talking about a news alternative and obviously a sport alternative. Is that has that always been part of the strategy or is that something you're more sort of evolving into of being the alternate viewing choice? I think it's always something we've tried to do. Um, what happens is we try to be the alternative. And if you're really successful being the alternative, it actually turns into the mainstream and then you have to pivot again. And I think that's happened to us a bit in recent times. You know, we put 
MasterChef and Primetime and it was a cooking show and then it turns out to be massive and then it becomes the mainstream and then you have to do something different and, you know, cause you can't, or, or we're first putting on strip programming five nights a week and then that became the mainstream. So I think if you're, if you are providing an alternative and it works, it's very quickly not an alternative. So it has always been the strategy. It just sometimes doesn't feel like that. Well, uh, um, question for, I suppose, both of you, and this is just thinking about, you know, what you said, Bev, about it. I forget the exact phrase you used, but a, a, a tough year. Now, I know that ratings aren't necessarily the only game anymore, but clearly I think agencies and advertisers do want a strong third competitor. Um, are you, what's a good way of asking this? Are you willing to tolerate in the long term the sort of share you are getting? I don't think it's a case of, of are you willing to tolerate? Um, and we've spoken about this in the past. I think it's a case of um, we understand what we understand what makes up our share. Um, we make tweaks to that every year to to, to improve that. Um, and you've just you know spoken through that with Bev in, in, in some detail. It really does come down to what is what is the, the purpose of our free-to-view offering, um, how is it contributing to the business, how is it, and when I say that, I mean contributing to all of the business. It's both an economic discussion and it's a promotional discussion. Um, and we've spoken a lot this week and in past years also about the evolving ecosystem of Paramount in Australia. That is not something that, um, that I think is fully understood yet and we'll continue to work away at that. But... But there is no doubt that free to view, both linear and ten play, play a really critical role. A really critical role, and I can't overemphasise that enough to the way in which our business operates in Australia. And I think to that, we are accepting of the fact that people choose to consume their content in different ways. So although, of course, we'd always like our share to be higher, who wouldn't? We'd want to, we've wanted it to be higher every year since the beginning of time. Everybody always wants their share to be higher. But we are actively, with particular demographics, actually marketing people straight to template of the live stream because there's a certain age of person who is simply not going to tune in their TV, but they will watch the app and they will watch Survivor, but they'll watch it on template. And template has had really strong growth this year. So I think it is really about understanding the overall picture. The issue is that a lot of of particular, not necessarily the trade reporting, but a lot of the reporting is still around overnights. And I think that probably paints only half a picture. And I think that's probably, you know, one of the problems that we all face is just getting the broader um, kind of um, populace to understand what success looks like now. Like what does success actually, actually look like? Last night's ratings are only one metric. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about Paramount Plus, commissions for Paramount Plus in 2024. I suppose the one that everyone's going to be looking out for is NCIS. I suppose the one everyone's going to be looking out for is NCIS Sydney. Yes. Well, they don't have to wait long because it drops on November 10 and it's, it's really fantastic. And I think it's great for the Australian industry. It's a 
big production. It looks like NCIS, but it also looks like an Australian show. And the team have done a fantastic job because getting those two things, getting it to be NCIS, but also to feel uniquely Australian, actually requires a really deft showrunner. Um, so um, the team at ESA in conjunction with CBS Studios have made it for us. So we are excited about that. And also it opens the door because if we can get IP that has really strong DNA in it, because NCIS works because it is procedural, but it's also fun. Um, so if we can get that sort of um, procedural to work, it allows us to do other things. So we are excited about that. We also announced Top Gear Australia and we have commissioned a big version of Top Gear because as we understand it, and when you look at Top Gear, there's three things that you need to make it work. You need to have great chemistry between the, the hosts. It's a bit of a, you know, kind of boys road trip. That's what the show is. You need toys, big, expensive cars, fast boats, fast cars, cool stuff, weird stuff, um, and a funny a funny show like funny writers so we've invested really um significantly so that we get a great version of top gear australia so that it can travel and play in other markets and although it will be australian we'll be shooting it all over the world and having fantastic cars um paper dolls drops pretty soon it's actually really interesting it's kind of soapy um it's kind of that guilty pleasure type viewing and this is um, the girl band story it's the girl band the rise and very fast demise um so it's great and, and again, a lot of this stuff will play on 10 down the line. And, you know, that utility is really important that we put it on Paramount Plus and then we can move it on to 10. We have an Asher Kelly drama called Fake. We've actually just finished shooting it. And it's kind of like dark and twisty and interesting based on a real book. So we're, we're playing in a different, a few different spaces in Paramount Plus. We're not just going for the high status drama. We're going for big, broad drama and high-end um, kind of factual content and obviously NCIS, the, the big, shiny procedural. And um, NCIS will also be on CBS in a couple of weeks. So that's pretty exciting. And then I guess when we sort of play into the kind of the global side of Paramount, it, it feels like one of the big drivers I guess from where I sit of subscriptions must be the various kind of Yellowstone spin-offs. Absolutely. They're incredibly important. People love them. They're really broad. They're really um they're beautifully produced, really well cast, but big broad shows with big broad storytelling. So they certainly do really well in Australia and they do incredibly well all over the world, as you can tell by the fact that we continue to commission um more content in that kind of Taylor verse. And on the subject of Paramount plus um Jared I uh, something which was which was mentioned more than once in the presentations and uh, there there've been plenty of sort of third party monitors saying the same thing that Paramount Plus is the fastest growing um what subscriber numbers has Paramount Plus actually got in Australia uh, as you know Tim we don't talk about uh subscriber numbers on a domestic basis globally um, I think we're up towards 65 million subscribers on a global basis now. Um, domestically, we obviously do have reference points uh, from from third parties, which would suggest that uh, Paramount Plus is, is at or about one and a half million subscribers at the moment. Um, okay, well, thank you for giving me a, a hint at the very least. Um, another just practical question. Um, Pluto TV is, yes, it's launched in, in, in Australia within, uh, within Template. Um, in some other Paramount markets, and I'm thinking of the UK and the US, Pluto TV, I suppose, is a much bigger brand when it comes to fast, so 
for which for listeners free ad supported television in other words channel based streaming um will pluto eventually become the main brand of template in that same way that Ten All Access became Paramount Plus. Is that what the, the the plan will be in time? I think putting brand to to one side for a moment. Um, if you look at what's the offering on Template that already exists, it includes catch up. It includes linear live stream or simulcast of of our, our linear programming, and it includes currently fifty one fast channels. And I suspect that that might um, expand as we get into twenty twenty four. So your offering is is very um, um, robust at the moment, and really when we think about think about the evolution of Tenplay, it really does come down to the tech stack and the way in which that continues to build out. I don't want to bore people with that sort of detail, but but it's one of the great benefits of being part of a global company is you can build things at global scale, and I think that as we think about the way in which that um, develops over time, um, that's a that's a possibility. Um, team from a a technology stack perspective. A couple of quick housekeeping questions. Um, The regional affiliate at Southern Cross Stereo. um, Now, I remember watching the investor call with SCA a month or two back, um, and there was just a bit of a hint from SCA on trying to solve the problem for agencies and advertisers of a true national buy. Um, now, obviously, what we've seen elsewhere in the market is seven bought prime and it became one thing. Nine brought together the wind sales team and to all intents and purposes, it became one organization. Um, is, is, is there a time soon when the SCA teams might, for instance, be reporting into Rod? I don't know about that structurally in terms of how we operationalize that, that, we already have a very close working relationship with them, and I've spent some time with um, with John Coe, the new CEO at SCA, talking about how we bring those teams in terms of the way they operationalise in the market um, closer together. We're very confident of those plans. I actually honestly don't think that it's any harder to buy nationally through a combined uh, network, 10 sales house and SCA sales house um, because of the way in which they close together, and we plan to... to um, have greater collaboration as we move into 2024, starting right from now as we move into to consortium discussions. So um, we're very, very confident in the way in which that operationalizes. And actually, if you look over the fence, um, ownership does not necessarily mean that it's a more seamless uh, transaction. And I think that there are still some things that are being worked through um, in the way in which the market engages, even when uh, ownership is common uh, or, as you refer to, uh, for intents and purposes, appears as though it's one operating model. So I actually don't think there's a there's an enormous gap there. And actually, we've had a number of conversations, and I'm sure that some of the listeners will have maybe slightly differing views to this. But certainly, many of the conversations we've had with the market is that um, that as it stands at the moment, it is not a problem. Now, SCA might be broken up. Um... I guess one of the weird things with affiliate deals is sometimes it's nice clean revenue when it is an affiliate deal. Um, is there, uh, so, so I, I, I totally realize it, it, it may not even particularly suit Paramount to be a player for those regional TV assets if they do come up, but is there, is there a price 
or a circumstance in it in which it would be worth your while picking up those SCA assets? One's price, one's structure. Um, again, I don't want to I don't want to bog the the conversation down in, into the detail, but often people look at this through overly an overly simplistic lens. Um, when you think about transactions, there is you know why do you want to own it and why does it bring value to you, to your organisation? Uh, and for us. Um, we, we have looked uh, closely at those assets. They're a terrific partner of ours. We love working with them. Uh, and I think I'm on the record elsewhere that, that our view is we just don't think that we need to own those assets. And we've got our own reasons for that. Um, but clearly, you know, regional distribution um, remains an important element to, um, to our mix. Um, but we don't think that, um, that ownership is the only way forward on that. Okay, uh, last two questions for me, and I, th- I think both questions will be for both of you. Um, uh, you are part of a global company. What's the best thing and the worst thing about that? Well, the best thing for me is working with um, global creative teams. So last week I was at MIPCOM, and on the way back I went through London and spent some time with lots of the creatives who are commissioning for Paramount Plus in Europe which, and, and in the UK. Um and the US teams and the Latin American teams dialed in. So I find that really interesting and quite, you know, stimulating as a creative to hear what's happening in other countries and how people think about things. It's great to be, and, and to access that IP, to be able to access it um, and utilize, you know, different studios and different ideas and meet different people. Like, I think all of that is great. The thing that's not great for me, Jared will know this because I'm quite a sleepyhead, is if you're working with people who live all over the world, you kind of sometimes have to be on the phone in the middle of the night and I am not at my best at 2 a.m. <laughs> Same question to you, Jared. Yeah, I'll answer it, answer it uh, from a simplicity and complexity perspective. I think there, there are many great things that come from a simplicity perspective uh, in a global business and that really is around content and the collaboration that comes through that. Um, and, of course, we've also spoken about the, the slightly less sexy topic of technology and data, but that also creates great simplicity in the business and a general direction as to where we're, where we're heading and how we build out things on a global scale. And you know that there's wonderful longevity when you think about how that develops over time. Um, uh, on the complexity side, <clears throat> I think time zones is certainly one of them. I have a call uh, at 1.30 uh, Friday morning, so in a few hours. Uh, so, I mean, that's a very real life example of, of particularly when you live in Australia and you're part of a global company and anybody else who, who works in that environment will know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, but look, that's part and parcel of the role and you know what you're walking into. But I think that the time zone complexities and certainly also that there are some dynamics that, that from a domestic perspective, you've got to fully appreciate how they fit in from a global perspective. And that, you know, that, um, uh, takes a little bit of a, it's a learned behaviour and I have to say that uh, I think you referred to, I've been here for three years and it's probably taken me all those three years to fully appreciate that too. And there's probably one other point that's worth adding in terms of being part of a global business. We have a global news operation and for example, we currently have um, a journalist in Israel and being able to go there, go in there and have the support of a global news operation, a global security team and being able to manoeuvre quickly as we did into the Ukraine and we were able to utilize some of those CBS access assets. So in terms of 
our news organization being part of a global business is certainly incredibly beneficial. And last question from me, what do people get wrong about Paramount? I, I think we've kind of touched on it. The thing that I think people get wrong is that they don't see the entire scale of the business that they think Network 10 and they don't know that it's Paramount or they think Paramount and they think of Top Gun, which we love. But I think it's about understanding that Paramount is the sum of all of those parts and the sum of all of those parts is actually greater than all of those parts individually. I think that's probably the thing that they get wrong. Jared? Yes, I think the market generally in Australia is, as an industry, um, this is this is really the first true evolution of that kind of global scale business in this in this country, um, and um, I think that I think on the inside, those that work in the industry on a day to day basis uh, have now got their head around that and, and understand the direction of travel, understand that it's it's about a much broader set of assets than than Network Ten, which I have to say and will keep saying is still a very important part of our business, um, but. Of course, there's there's some in the industry that don't want to see that evolution, or don't want to talk about that evolution, and want to kind of bring it back to something that you know was an industry um, that reflects a, a, a bygone era. But I think um, that uh, we're very very confident in the direction of of Paramount, and very proud of the suite of assets that we have. Well, Jared and Bev, it's such a busy time of year, so I do appreciate you being so generous with your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tim. Always great to chat. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please do give us a five-star rating in your favourite podcatcher. Today's podcast was produced with the assistance of Abe's Audio. I'm Tim Burrows. Toodle pip. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.